Well, uh, Christmas, no, don't clap, they'll do more. So, uh, uh, hey, Christmas can be weird, and the truth is that some of you are going to experience some weird Christmas in about a week with your family. And what I want to talk about today is a part of the Christmas story that's kind of weird as well. What we're going to talk about today is the incarnation. Now, I did not say carnation like the flower. How many of you like carnations? Anyone a carnation person? Okay. My daughter, Shiloh, yesterday was in Mean Girls, and uh, we gave her carnations because she loves carnations. Um, I did not say the instant meal carnation. Okay. Anyone you ever eat one of those before? Ugh, horrible. Not a fan. Um, and then finally, I did not say either the carnations, the heavy metal rocker group, dude. Uh, they look a little bit scary there. Um, but what I really talked about was the incarnation, not carnation. And this is a theological concept that people have written tons of books uh, libraries could come all over it to try to understand. But this concept simply comes down to this, and this is your first fill-in for those of you that are on the stream and everyone here in the auditorium, either on the app or in the program, and it's this. What is the carnation? It's God clothing himself in human flesh and choosing to live among us, even though we've messed up big time. God clothed himself in human flesh and came to live among us. In fact, that is what Christmas is all about. God coming in flesh in the form of the baby Jesus. Now, have any of you uh, seen some newborn babies lately? Anyone in the audience? Anyone? Okay, a few. And uh, we've had several newborn babies born uh, in the church. Now, when my two girls uh, were born, Jordan and Shiloh, I was just like over the moon, head over heels in love with these two little girls. And I just couldn't imagine uh, anything so perfect as the two of them. Their little toenails and their little fingernails. And every time that they would look at me, I just was amazed. And I was so emotional, more emotional than my wife, Jennifer, who had delivered them. And I'll never forget with Jordan's uh, first bath, the nurse was like, hey, we always let the dads do it and we'd like you. And I'm like crying. I'm like, oh, I'd love to do that. And all of a sudden, snot comes out of my nose and starts coming on my newborn baby. And the nurse looks at me and she goes, you've got to get it together. You're getting snot on your baby, you know. And uh, I just kind of wiped the snot in and just kept doing that, you know. Now, uh, in biology uh, class, uh, in high school, for you and me, what we learn is that there's something, though, that comes before the little tiny baby. Do you remember what that is? Um, it is called an embryo. Uh, how many of you honestly remember that? Raise your hand. Okay, at least you're not lying today, because most of you probably skip biology, right? So, no, no. In biology class, I didn't skip, and this is what I learned. That an embryo is half the size of a grain of sand. Think about that. When an embryo is first 
kind of created, it is half the size of a grain of sand. Now, look at the person beside you for a second, okay? They look really, really big, don't they? But at one time, they were half the size of a grain of sand. They were an itsy, bitsy, teeny, weeny embryo. Now, the incarnation of Jesus Christ uh, is something that's very difficult for us to understand And many times we don't realize this, that the second of the Trinity, that is Jesus himself, was something really, really, really big before he became an embryo. He was like really, really big before you and I were an embryo. We were nothing. We were just like a a glimpse in our parents' eyes. But Jesus the second of the Trinity who was in in heaven, who was in heaven and had created all things and was a part of the entire process, he actually became a small little embryo. But before he became an embryo, he was God the Son. He was God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus was existing from the beginning. Now, The text that kind of explains this whole idea, this theological understanding of the incarnation uh, is written in Philippians chapter 2. This is in the New Testament, the second half of the Bible. And Paul, one of Jesus' closest friends uh, and closest followers, was a person who wrote this. And this is what he said. He wrote these words. Jesus, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So the text begins by telling us that Jesus was in the very nature of of God. There was equality between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, the problem sometimes when people talk about Jesus is they don't realize that he's God. A lot of people think that Jesus was more like, you know, the vice president to God, or like an assistant to God, or the backup quarterback to God. That's kind of who they think Jesus is, but that's not what anywhere in Scripture ever tells us. It tells us that at the very beginning, Jesus was in equality with God the Father. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says this, let, what's the next word? Us. Now that's kind of weird, isn't it? Why wouldn't he say, if it's just God, why wouldn't he say, let me make man in his own image? No, no. At the very beginning, what we find is this concept of the Trinity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our own image. Same substance, but many different natures, these three natures of God. Jesus was fully involved, you got to realize, at the very beginning of creation, 
during the miracle that everything was created. In fact, the scripture that I love the most refers to the power and the position of Jesus in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. It says this, Jesus was, what's the next word? Before. Before all things, Jesus was before all things, and in him all things hold together. Folks, what I'm driving at this morning is this, that not only was Jesus fully God, but he had all of the privileges, all the power, all the entitlements and prerogatives of what it meant to live in heaven as God's son, fully available to him, anything he wanted. Which means if you start up in heaven as the second person of the Trinity and you wind up down here in the filth and the nasty of earth as an embryo half the size of a grain of sand implanted into the stomach of a 14-year-old pimple-faced girl, this is one heck of a demotion. Like it is a huge demotion. And this kind of leads us to our big idea this morning for those of you on the stream and everyone here in the auditorium, and it's this. No one in the history of the world took a bigger demotion than Jesus Christ. No one in the history of the world took a bigger demotion than Jesus Christ. And so the question that I want to ask you this morning is this. How do you respond when you experience a little demotion? How do you, the person sitting in your seat, respond when you're demoted? On any uh, commercial airline, there are typically two different sections. There is the first class section and there is the economy section. And there is something that kind of separates these two sections. And what is it? Have you ever been on an airplane? What separates first class from economy? A curtain. It's like the Holy of Holies is in the first class. And you can't see what's going on in there because it's special stuff. Now, one particular time, I had a seat in the first row of the economy class. So I'm sitting here on the aisle and, you know, the actual kind of curtain is there. And I could look and I could see the first class people. And who wouldn't want to be in first class? I mean, you have two seats instead of three seats and the dreaded middle seat that no one ever wants to sit in. And then they get like meals and food and they only have one flight attendant for like 10 to 16 people while the other 80 non-important people only have one in the back. And there was this sense that my entire life was flashing in front of me and I was never going to be first class because I was too tight. I have never bought a first class ticket in my life before. But on this particular day, I was so close to first class that I measured how far it was from my seat to the person in first class. 
And this is what I found out. You know how far it is? Three feet. Three feet. I don't think the person was very excited when they saw me like looking around, trying to measure with my hand. I didn't care. But I measured it. And I just wondered what would happen if someone from first class was asked to move three feet. What would happen? So, because I do a lot of research for all of you, during this teaching, I look to see what has happened before. Do you know Hollywood stars, because they were asked to move three feet, some of them have actually been kicked off planes before because they got so upset that they had to move three feet from first class to economy. I looked up religious leaders who are on television, who make lots of money, who have been in first class before, and they were asked to move back. And big arguments, pictures of them fighting with the flight attendant because they had to move three feet. I recently read a story about a multimillionaire who was a big exec, and when they asked him to move, he got so mad they had to bring the police on there because he was just asked to move three feet. Some people, folks, just don't like three feet demotions. Now, what about you? What about you? Do you take demotions lightly or don't you? For example, what if someone came to work tomorrow and said, actually, we're going to demote you. You're going to get less money. You're going to have to work more. And we're going to demote you. What would some of you do? You would get mad. You would get angry. Some of you might even quit your job. What happens when you're in an organization and you're a part of a nonprofit or something with your kids and they ask you to do something less than because someone's better than you? A lot of people I know will quit. I've seen it happen in churches. People will be asked to be demoted in some way, and they're like, I'm done. I'm quitting the church. Or what about in a restaurant? You go and you make your reservation, and then you get there, and they tell you, well, you're actually going to have to wait longer because we've put in a few more people. I've seen people get so mad, turn on their heels, and walk out of the restaurant and go, bye-bye. We're going to get our own restaurant somewhere else. The truth is, folks, no one likes demotions. And yet, on Incarnation Day, the single greatest demotion in the history of the world occurred. Jesus, the text says, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And I was thinking to myself, what if we were asked to make that kind of move? Would we do that? I don't know, but for Jesus, it was crazy. He had all the privileges, all the power. He had everything of heaven since the beginning of time. Beauty, unity, undescribable uh, undescribable splendor. And would you voluntarily leave all of that and lose the grip to do that? And I was thinking about it for myself. The answer would be no. I would not want to do that. And yet, Jesus did. Each uh, summer, my dad, who uh, is a pastor, when I was growing up as a kid, he would go to a church conference. And when he would go to one of these church conferences, he would choose either my older sister or brother or myself to go. 
And so my sister went for several years, and then my brother did. And my brother actually got to fly on a plane uh, for the first time. And I was so mad at Tim. He flew to Seattle, Washington, went up in the Space Needle, had an amazing experience. And he bragged the entire year. And the next year, my dad said, well, you know, Chris, you're 12 now, and so I'm going to take you. You're going with me this year. You know where he took me? Wichita, Kansas. Wichita, Kansas. And we did not go in an airplane. We went in an unair conditioned Chevette all the way in the summer, like this car, to Wichita, Kansas. We sweat profusely the entire time. My mom made our lunches. We didn't even eat at a restaurant. We ate in rest stops. That's what we did. Sweating, eating, horrible experience. And so as we're driving out there, I'm thinking to myself, well, hopefully the hotel's going to be good. And so I asked dad, I said, well, dad, do they have a pool? I don't know. Well, do they have like movie channels like HBO and that kind of thing? I don't know. Well, do they have like, you know, any kind of amenities that will take care of us? I don't know. What do you know, dad? Well, I know it's called the plantation. And all of a sudden I started thinking to myself, the plantation. You see, in history class, I'd read about plantations, and I thought to myself, I'm going to be like a king in a plantation. Just like in the movie Gone with the Wind, the Terra Plantation. And I thought to myself, this is going to be amazing. And so when we got there, they had a mix-up on our hotel. We were actually in this nasty motel downtown. And I'm like, Dad, there's no way we can stay here. He's like, yeah, we're not. And they said, oh, no, 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 that's called the plantation, but where you're going to stay is called the diamond plantation by the airport. And so we go out to the airport, and it wasn't Terra, but they had done all of the landscaping like a plantation. And it was beautiful, and I loved it. And they had an outdoor pool and an indoor pool. I mean, that was unheard of when I was growing up as a kid. And inside, there was a big screen TV that had all of the movie channels, including HBO. And it wasn't like our black and white little, you know, rabbit ear TV that we had in Marion, Indiana. And when you walked into the lobby, there were these flowers everywhere in vases. They were not vases, folks. They were vases. And everything was amazing. Well, you can imagine when you're a 12-year-old kid, no matter how much you love God, you don't want to leave that place. And so my dad would wake me up in the morning and he would be like, come on, we got to go. And I'd say, no, I'm going to stay here and pray to God. I think this is where God is at right now. He's like, no, 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 you got to go. And then when we would come back, they would have our, you know, our beds pulled down, little chocolates on it. They would take uh, all the towels and make animals. And it was the best place I had ever stayed at in my life. And it was so cool, and I didn't want to leave. Well, finally, D-Day came. The time came where we had to leave, and I chained myself to my bed. Not really, but... I was like, there's no way we can leave this. And the truth is, my dad didn't want to leave either. We were going to leave the pleasures of the plantation, and we were headed back in an unair-conditioned Chevette to go back to this rinky-dinky house in Marion, Indiana. And nobody wanted to go. Now, here's the point, folks. Here's the point. 
We have no idea. You have no idea what it was like for Jesus to leave heaven to come to earth. And it wasn't just for a week, but it was for 33 years. All he had known before that was eternity past, the splendor of heaven being worshipped by tens of thousands of angels worshiping him 24-7 all the time. I mean, the description of heaven that is maybe the best one is in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, which says this, eye is not seen, ear is not heard, nor has it entered into the mind of a human being what heaven is like. And folks, Jesus left it all And he voluntarily, it wasn't by force, he voluntarily left heaven to come to earth and not for a week, but for 33 years. Folks, that was the greatest demotion in the history of the world. But it doesn't stop there. You see... Jesus didn't just leave heaven and become this little embryo, but when he was actually born, he was born in a barn. A barn where there were other animals, filthy animals, who kind of left their droppings all around. You see, sometimes what happens is we want to romanticize the Christmas story, but there was nothing romantic about it at all. And he was born into the home of two poor peasants that could not even afford clothes for him. So they cut off strips of cloth, they laid it around him, and then he was stuck in a feeding trough where cows had just eaten and he was placed there so his mom could have some rest. That is what I call, folks, a huge demotion. And if that wasn't humiliation enough, then an earthly egomaniac king named Herod concocted a plan to go out and to kill all of the boys who were two years and younger. And so before Jesus could even walk or talk, he was on the run with his parents going to a foreign country. They were illegal aliens. The second person of the Trinity... The Son of God is now on the run in a foreign land. I mean, you can't get more demoted than that, can you? Yes, you can. Philippians chapter 2 verse 7 says this, that as Jesus grew up, he took on the nature of a what? A servant. The one who created all things is now a servant. In fact, his last dinner... The disciples forgot to get the slave boy to actually wash their feet and they walk in and everybody can smell the nastiness of their feet where they've been walking and no one else is going to stoop down to wash feet. They're too prideful to do that. And yet Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, reaches down and he washes the nasty, slimy feet of all the disciples. That's what it means to take on the nature of a servant. Now, you can't get further than that, though, can you? Yep, you can. He actually then is taken and he is betrayed. 
he is denied uh, by his disciples. They all run away. And he, the second person of the Trinity, is taken to a court, a kangaroo court, where they took him in the middle of the night and they changed all kinds of rules so that he could actually be convicted of a crime he didn't commit. And then they take him and they slap him and they beat him and they flog him. When that says they flogged him, they actually took pieces of rock and metal at the end of a whip and they would uh, whip him into his back. And the concept of being skinned alive actually took place as they would pull the skin off of the back. And that's what happened to Jesus. But you can't get more demoted than that, can you? Yep, you can. Philippians 2.8 says this, He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. What does that mean? The second person of the Trinity who was there at the beginning, who had only known sinlessness his entire life, now has all of the weight of the sins of the world loaded onto his shoulders when he's on the cross. That means all of your sin, everything you've ever done wrong in the past, today, or in the future, all of it is placed upon his shoulders and all of mine is. And the truth is, folks, I have a pile of sin that is so big, I can't imagine that he took all of that, and not just for me, but every human being that would ever walk. All of our sins, all of my sins, Everything from the past, everything in the future, they're all loaded onto his sins. And now he's a guilty, shame-filled sinner to the extent that no one in the history of the world has ever shouldered that much sin. He's stripped of his clothes in humiliation, and then he's left to die on a cross. And then he dies. And the author of life breathed his last breath. The one who actually gave breath to Adam and Eve at the beginning of time is now the one that's taking his last final breath. And then he ends it all with these words. It is finished. And then he submits himself to the ultimate weapon of evil which is death. And folks, that was the final, ultimate decision. The final, ultimate demotion as the giver of life gave his one and only life for the likes of people like you and those of you on the stream and me. Now, at this point, I have a feeling that some of you are thinking to yourself, Chris, it's Christmas. Let's have some joy. People are getting baptized. I mean, I got Christmas parties to go to, and, you know, there's got to be some more joy in your life, Chris. Like, what's that about? We got NFL games this afternoon. Like, what's going on? Let's, let's be a little bit more happy. Well, Some of you might say, Chris, can you just lighten up? 
Well, the last three weeks we've been talking about weird Christmas. And some of you are going to experience a weird Christmas. Some of you are going to experience Christmas today or this year without a loved one at the table. Some of you are going to experience Christmas with not so sure that you have a job or you've already lost your job, but you haven't told anybody. Others of you are going to experience it in such a way that you're not sure if you're going to be able to move on from a strained relationship, whether it's with your parents, with your spouse, with your kids. And it's going to be a weird Christmas. And I simply wanted to come here today to be able to tell you that the truth is that the very first Christmas was very weird too. It was not a normal Christmas. It was weird. And it was a demotion day. You see, for, for Jesus, folks... Christmas was Demotion Day, which was followed very quickly by Refugee Day, which was followed by nonstop series of demotions that I just walked you through all the way to where Jesus finally came to was the greatest demotion of Death Day. So before we get too far into Christmas 2023, I just wanted to rock your minds and your hearts today one more time before we go off to like our exchange parties and shopping and and doing all of the stuff that's around Christmas. I just want to remind you that every time that you drive by a little nativity scene that's in somebody's yard, that the truth is the miracle of the little baby who's in the manger didn't come from an embryo. He came from heaven. And he wasn't forced to leave heaven, but he left it joyfully and willingly and voluntarily because he was on a mission. A mission to forgive all of your sins, everything that you've ever committed. And the question becomes, why did he do that? Like, why did he choose to be demoted in that way? Why did he choose to be demoted? I mean, what is it that possesses the one who created everything from heaven and living there forever to come here? And it all comes down, folks, to one word, one word only. And that is love. He did all of it for love. Scripture says this, God is love. That's his nature. The only thing that he knows is to love. And he looks down from heaven and he sees the messed up world and he says, I will choose a demotion to go down there to let them know that I love them. God actually made you. He created you. Why? so that he could love you. You see, Christmas was demotion day for Jesus, but Christmas was promotion day for you and for me. Because from that event, God reminds us that he loved us so much. John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to leave heaven and to come here to earth because of his love for you. But not only did he leave heaven to come to earth to love you, to forgive you, 
But he also wants you to know that he is for you. There's a scripture in Romans 8, 31 that says this. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, the truth is, I bet you know some people right now in your life as you're getting ready for Christmas who are against you. Like you don't have to think too long to think of someone who might be against you. But there is one who will never, ever be against you. In fact, you could start every single sentence with your life this way. God is for me. God is for me when I have a problem. God is for me when I'm going through a troubled relationship. God is for me when I'm dealing with a work situation. God is for me as I go into this Christmas season. Every sentence that you can ever imagine, you can begin it by saying, God is for me. And how do we know this? Because he proved it. He actually left the confines of heaven of splendor and glory to come in human flesh and to live among us. Now, some of you might be sitting there and you're like, well, yeah, but I've messed up too much, Chris. Like, I've hurt people. I've done some things. There's some stuff that's so ugly. I could never, ever, I can't believe he would be for me. No, no, no. That's why he left heaven. He left heaven to get into your mess to let you know that you are loved and cared for and that he would never, ever leave you. Maybe there are others of you who are like, well, I've drifted away from God. I mean, this is the first time I've been back to church or first time I'm back on the stream or the first time. And so there's no way that if I've drifted away from God, he's not going to drift. No, no, no. God always drifts closer to us. He says, if you drifted away, just turn around, drift back. I'm right there. I want a relationship with you. I am for you. I'm for you. If you drifted back, it would change your life again. So if you drifted away, why not drift back this Christmas? Because you need to remember this, folks. There's nothing you can do in your life to make God love you more. And you're like, oh, I can't do something. No, but this is what's true also. There's nothing in your life that you can do to make God love you less. He loves you and he is for you. So folks, God is love. And his son took on the greatest emotion this world has ever known to prove this to you. For everyone in this section right now, I love you and I'm for you. That's what God says. For everyone in this section, I love you and I'm for you. Everyone in this section, I love you, I'm for you. Everyone in the balcony, what he says is, I love you, I'm for you. For every single person that's on the stream today, this is the message of Christmas. When Jesus took on the greatest emotion, why did he do it? To let you know that I love you and I am for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for loving us that you said, I will be for you. Thank you for sending Jesus into the world and 
taking the biggest emotion this world has ever known. Now, maybe today there are some of you who are like, you know, I haven't made that commitment to Christ. I haven't made that decision. But today you're like, if he was willing to take that kind of demotion, why would I not just reach up to him and have a relationship with him? And so if today is your day, or maybe the truth is you're recommitting your life to Christ today to say, you know what, I'm here I drifted away, but I'm coming back. If today is your day, if today's the day where you're like, I want to surrender my one and only life to him. I want to recommit to that. I need his love. I need his grace. I need his forgiveness. I need him in my life. I want to know that I will be in heaven with him one day. Then I invite you in a prayer. And it's not a prayer that you pray by yourself, but it's one that we pray together. So if you feel comfortable doing so, I invite you to just close your eyes, to bow your head, and to repeat this prayer. It's your prayer after me. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me. Jesus, forgive me. Make me brand new. I believe you died and rose again so I could live with you. Fill me with your spirit so I could know you, serve you, and follow you. For the rest of my life. My life is not my own. Today I give it to you. Thank you for new life. Now you have mine. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.